Welcome to the Fallon Forum, where we bring you independent voices and civil dialogue across the political divide. I'm Ed Fallon. I'm your host, and we're coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa, also known as the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Hey, if you value what we do, you know, we could use your support. Uh, you can visit the donations page on the Fallon Forum website, or if you run a small business or a nonprofit, you know, consider becoming a sponsor. And uh, speaking of sponsors, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. And here's a great holiday idea, Gateway Gift Cards. Gateway gift cards can be used not only at Gateway Market, but also at several great Central Iowa establishments, including Centro, Django, Malo, Zombie Burger, and more. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis. Owner Mark Clipsham says no matter how you plan to renovate your project, please use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. That's Architecture by Synthesis. So today, yeah, later in the program, we'll be discussing America's healthcare system, or maybe we should call it a sick care system. Anyway, business owner Mark Clipsham joins us for that conversation. We'll also talk about the federal government's intervention in the labor dispute between rail workers and the, well, call them the modern-day railroad barons, I've had a conversation with Ross uh, Gruders about that. He's a real railroad worker and, um, uh, and very active in the union. Uh, he can't join us, but I've had a good conversation. I'll share some of his impressions of the uh, agreement that Biden and Congress uh, hammered out. And finally, for our farm and food segment, Kathy Burns will join us, and we will be discussing tomatoes or tomatoes, depending on how you want to say it. Yeah, several reasons why that's a really interesting conversation in December. But first, got to talk about the Iowa caucuses. Whether you live in Iowa or anywhere in the country, this is a conversation that should interest you. You know, and right out of, right out of the shoot, I'm going to say I am an Iowa caucus supporter. You know, although I, I, I do think it's time to start rotating that role of which four states get to go first. Uh, I'll talk a little bit more about that later. You know, but, I, you know, I, I'm actually pretty tired of the Iowa caucuses being bashed, um, including by Iowans. By the way, I think I may, be a, I may be a minority of this opinion in Iowa. But hear me out. I think I make a good case for why this is a good institution. Again, the Iowa caucuses go way back, what, almost 50 years. And they've been, I think they've been one of the best things that ever happened for democracy. And, you know, I'll talk a little bit more about that. But first, you know, why are the caucuses done, washed up, finished, a past history chapter at this point? You know, I, well, I place the uh, blame squarely with Joe Biden and with the, uh, the Democratic National Committee. Because you know, face it, Joe Biden does not like Iowa caucuses, do not, does not like Iowa Democrats. I mean, there's a few he likes, Tom Vilsack. But, uh, you know, look no further than the Bold Iowa website. Check out boldiowa.com. Uh, we were crazy busy in 2019 and early 2020, making sure every candidate had a chance to hear from, oh, over 200 people across the state who wanted to know where candidates stood on various climate issues. And, you know, we weren't the only Iowans doing that. There were Iowans doing that on health care, on war, war and peace, on on disabilities rights, on labor issues. I mean, there are there always people out there making sure candidates heard the right questions about the important issues that affect everybody's lives, not just Iowans' lives. To me, one thing sums it up. And, and again, go to the boldiowa.com website, and you'll see all these interviews with candidates. Uh, sometimes they're just really quick little chances to get a question, and sometimes they really are extended conversations. But one sticks with me in particular. This is one filmed by Kathy Burns when she and I and a group of Grinnell students at Grinnell College um, following a CNN forum, we were, you know, Biden invited us to come up and talk with him. So we did. And uh, I want to ask him about the Dakota Access Pipeline, about climate change. And you can hear this quote. This is Biden saying, all you guys in Iowa are pains in the neck. You know that? And I responded, yeah, I know that. Just kind of jesting with him. But that kind of sums it up. We are a pain in Joe Biden's neck. He didn't want to come back here. <laughs> and now he's arranged it so he doesn't have to come back here. 
Congratulations, President Biden. Uh, you exercised your power in such a way that uh, you're going to avoid an uncomfortable situation. And I, and I say this in the context of I, I do believe that Biden has done a better job as president than many of us, me included, thought he would do. I mean, it's not great. I mean, the bar is pretty low. You know, I'll share that critique for another day. But I think credit where credit's due, Biden has done better than most of us, including me, expected. You know, and there are so, OK, the Iowa caucuses go back to 1972. And uh, there have been plenty of losers in the Iowa caucuses over the year. Uh, but Biden is probably the losingest of all. You know, so much losing, uh, you know. And that's why he's not happy with the Iowa caucuses. Again, he ran in 1988. I first met him in 1987. Uh, we both had hair back then. And in that campaign, uh, I was working with the Iowa Peace Movement, and we did a lot of act activity getting candidates to be responsive on nuclear testing, on uh, military spending, and on one, uh, one weapon system that was of great concern at that time, the Trident missile. And I tell you, you know, I mean, we were very effective at that. I remember Joe, uh, uh, Bruce Babbitt, the governor of Arizona, was quoted in a New York Times story saying, I'm impressed with how, much, how, how knowledgeable Iowa voters are about war and peace issues. I even get asked about the Trident missile. Well, you know, I know, again, Iowa, we're so lucky we get to go first. It's good for our economy, blah, blah, all that. But, you know, this is a heck of a lot of work. There is so much work involved in being a good, you know, you know, public activist, uh, you know, political, social activist when it comes to you know, making sure the candidates who, who might be president get to hear the right questions. And, you know, when they give the right or wrong answers, that, that information gets disseminated. So, you know, that goes all the way back to 1988. Well, maybe you don't remember what happened back then. Maybe some of you do. But in 1988, uh, Joe Biden... Oh, made the mistake of uh, plagiarizing uh, <laughs> some people, uh, particularly, I think, Neil Kinnock. And um, he got bounced out of the—he he quit. He, he dropped out. And the truth is, he wasn't, he wasn't polling very well either. I don't think he would have done very well in the caucuses that year. That was the year that Dick Gephardt won it. And by the way, that was the only year that, uh, that someone—usually, whoever does well in the Iowa caucuses does well— often goes on to be president. Now, that didn't happen, of course, in 92 either when, when Tom Harkin ran, but that was kind of a, you know, a, a, a lopsided field. But, um, yeah, that was the one year that, you know, Gephardt won, Simon got second, Paul Simon got second, Dukakis got third, and then Jesse Jackson right behind him. You know, so Biden has been exploring running for president since 1980. He thought about it in 80, he thought about it in 84. He tried in 80, 88, um, Thought about it again in 2004, did it in 2006, and it was in 2006 that I, I'd, I'd run for governor, and I got to spend an hour with Biden playing pool, losing, by the way. He beat me, props for that, uh, and in, quote, conversation. When I say conversation, I, he asked me a question. I took 20 seconds to start an answer. He took off and never stopped. I mean, he just st never stopped talking. Uh, I think the guy could probably talk you to death if uh, that expression is to be taken literally. But um, again, you know, Biden said something crazy back in 2007. He, he announced his campaign for president. Uh, and then I think it was about the same day that he said he described Barack Obama as the, quote, first mainstream African-American who is articulate and bright and clean and a nice looking guy, end quote. Uh, I mean, the... Biden sticking his foot in his mouth and then shoving it as far down as he can is historic. I mean, this goes all the way back to 19... Well, it goes... Well, I don't know how far back it goes. My first recollection is in 1988. So, I mean, I, I, I don't know. He said that. Um, I mean, I guess, I, guess that, I guess he was discounting Jesse Jackson as, a, uh, as an articulate and bright and clean African-American and nice-looking guy. I mean, I just, it's, a, it's an incredible statement. But that year, 2006, he finished fifth in Iowa. Then, of course, he ran again in 2020, and he finished fourth in Iowa, fifth in New Hampshire. And maybe one reason he does so poorly in these early states is because we get to spend more time with him. We get to see what he's like personally, how he responds. Uh, 
Uh, and, and again, I, I can tell you some amazing stories even just from the 2020 campaign. I mean, one was uh, Kathy and I were at an event here in Des Moines, and I, you know, I was getting close to Biden. It was a big crowd. I was getting close to Biden. I wanted to keep pushing him on the uh, Dakota Access Pipeline. And uh, I see him reach into a, you know, reach behind him and get some money from an aide and hand and hand like a five dollar bill to a kid to go buy ice cream. And I'm thinking, you, you, maybe you can do that, but you shouldn't do that. I, nobody else picked it up. The press didn't pick it up. I thought it was ridiculous, um, and a little bit funny. But um, you know, the the guy has never he this this I, I know the right wing. Detractors like to say that Biden is off the rails. Look at all the silly things he's saying and doing. No, he's always been that way. And uh, so, uh, but here, what, I, here, what I'm saying here is that, he, you know, Iowa has never gone well for him. You know, we, we get to talk to him face to face. We get to play pool with him sometimes. We get to see him slip $5 bills to kids to go buy ice cream. You know, we get lots of interaction with him. And his responses um, often don't make much sense. Now, again, again, all that said, he's doing better as president than I thought he would. But in terms of the Iowa caucuses, this is why Iowa is being bounced. All right. South Carolina is going to go first, probably. Right. And then uh, let's see. I'm, I'm trying to remember now who, uh, who who else is on that list. Uh, I think I think Nevada. Yeah. Nevada and New Hampshire are still in the mix. I mean, even the only one being bounced out of the top four is Iowa. <laughs> And then after New Hampshire, Nevada, then it'll be Georgia and Michigan. Iowa goes way the heck back. I think we're back on Super Tuesday now if everything goes the way it's being proposed. Now, it isn't just Biden to blame for the, uh, for the caucuses being lost. It's the DNC, the Democratic National Committee. You know, people have probably forgotten. It's been a long time. It's been, what, two years uh, since the IDP required the—well, the, the Iowa Democratic Party was required by the DNC to use a, an app. And this app, this app was supposed to be for reporting, tallying caucus results. I don't know why we would need an app, having done this every four years since 1972 without any big problem. But no, we were required to use this app provided by a company called Shadow that was a brand-new company. I think they'd been around for like five months. So Shadow— did not develop or test the app correctly. The DNC still required the IDP to use it. But does the DNC get blamed when the Iowa caucus results are botched? Nope. The Iowa Democratic Party takes the fall. And to their credit, they pushed back a bit. They, they, had, they had an audit done. They found out that, yeah, it was the, I, the DNC that really screwed up. But people still don't blame the DNC. I, I just, I, it just amazes me that they got away with that. <laughs> But it looks to me like the DNC set up Iowa to fail. And fail they did. And, uh, again, Joe Biden finishing fourth here. I am not surprised. No one should be surprised that Iowa got bounced. That doesn't make it right. Uh, in fact, again, I would argue that it makes it really, really wrong because no one is really, well, not no one, very few people are remembering and understanding the value that something like the Iowa caucuses holds. And, you know, and... Um, Again, I mentioned Bold Iowa's work uh, in 2019, 2020. We did an amazing job of holding candidates accountable, of, of grilling them on issues like the Dakota Access Pipeline, like uh, uh, hosting a climate debate, like, like, uh, like taking next, the next steps beyond the Paris Climate Agreement. And, you know, again, while we were doing that, there were other people with other groups, other issues doing the same thing. That's such important work. I don't know whether that will happen now. Maybe it will in South Carolina. Yeah, it has, in, it has happened in, in uh, New Hampshire for a long time. I have confidence that maybe it will continue in New Hampshire. Now, one thing that might happen here in Iowa, and <laughs> this is a funny thing to be saying, but I agree with Senator Grassley. Uh, Senator Grassley and DNC, uh, Iowa, DN, Iowa member of the DNC, uh, Scott Brennan, are both saying maybe the Iowa caucuses should just go ahead anyhow without the sanction of the National Party, and I think that's a great idea. I think the DNC has proven itself to be an abject failure on, on this, not just for this reason. I mean, the DNC likes to come in, and they probably do this in other states as well. I'm just not aware of how, how it works in other parts of the country. But here in Iowa, the DNC will look at a primary, even when there are candidates running who have credibility and respect and have been campaigning, the DNC will come in and insert its own hand-picked corporate-friendly candidate 
We've seen this happen the last two times that Senator Grassley has been up for election. I think we're going to continue to see it. And uh, the DNC, interestingly, the DNC candidates always lose. You know, so, you know, it's so much good happens when people are allowed to have that kind of access to candidates. We know how to do that really well in Iowa. I'm not saying that other parts of the country can't figure it out and shouldn't have a shot at it. I just think it, you, you have to have some kind of fair system whereby small states get to have an opportunity to, uh, to have a voice in this process. So what I say is this. Take a state from the Northeast, the South, the Midwest, and the West, and have those four states go first every, every four years. And then rotate them out to another four states from the same regions of the country. Again, exclude the big states, Texas, California, Florida, New York. You've already got your power. Um, let's let these smaller states have a chance where candidates can be met one-on-one with voters who want to come and talk with them. And, you know, and I know the other arguments, well, like, Iowa's too white. Well, you know, Iowa is less and less white all the time. And I get so tired of these racial arguments. And, you know, if you look at the Democratic Party in Iowa— it's much more diverse. And also, Iowa's too rural. Well, the Democratic Party in Iowa is pretty darn urban and mid-sized cities. So those arguments don't pan out for me. And even again, even arguments from some of my friends in Iowa, like Randy Evans, uh, who says, you know, argument against the caucuses, you know, people can't get the night off. Well, you know, most people, if you put in for something really important, can get the night off. Not always. Not always, but you should be able to. This should be a requirement that if you request caucus night off, you should be able to have that off. You know, um, some people argue, well, it takes two, two to three hours. Well, usually it takes one hour, maybe two hours. And, and so, I mean, giving a couple hours to democracy, is that a problem? You know, you know, Randy also argues that there are people who are out of town. Well, plan to be in town if you can, if at all possible. I mean, most people plan where they're going to be for Christmas, for example. You know, if, if the caucuses are important enough to you, plan where you're going to be that night, if at all possible. I get it. There may be some times where some people, you know, can't figure it out. Uh, Randy also points out there are those who don't drive. Well, get a ride. Um, <laughs> and maybe there's nasty weather. Well, there could be nasty weather, but fortunately, most caucus locations are within a few blocks of where most people live. Not always, but in most cases, they're really, really close by. Again, maybe that would be prohibitive in a trip in a typical Midwestern blizzard. Now, Randy also points out those who are in poor health might not be able to go. Okay, I'll give you that one. That's, that's plenty legit. But, you know, again, what happens at the caucuses and in New Hampshire leading up to the primary, in small states where voters have access to candidates, it's really, really important. I would hate to see it end. And maybe we're seeing the beginning of it ending because I don't think the DNC likes this access either. They want their candidates to be polished and and pretty, and on TV, and and uh, insulated from voters to some extent. And, um, you know, that that's kind of how Joe Biden, I mean, I, I think Biden might have beaten Trump anyhow in 2020 because Trump was so off the rails. And he's so off the rails now that even Republicans are pulling back from him. But, you know, will Biden win again? And make no mistake about it, he is running again in 2024. He would not have put this much effort into realigning the primary and caucus schedule if he wasn't planning to run. And he wants to run with South Carolina being the first state to vote. Uh, we know who's going to win that state, uh, despite what he said about um, Barack Obama back in, uh, back in 2006. Um, so, yeah, he's going to run again. He probably won't have a primary opponent. But uh, in four years from now, four years from then, there will be a primary. Hopefully there will be um, conversations that citizens can have, that voters can have with their candidates and this whole thing doesn't continue to spiral in the direction of some kind of national primary where it's all going to be on television. So there you have it, folks. My defense of the Iowa caucuses and of small states generally getting to vote early and giving people a chance to have access to candidates. Hey, we've got to take a short break. Again, this is Ed Fallon. When we come back, we're going to be discussing health care versus sick care with Mark Clipsham. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. 
Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Hey, at a time when big corporations control most of the media, the niche we opt to provide here for you folks is more important than ever. So please support what we do. Go to the Fallon Forum website, fallonforum.com. Donate, or even better, become a monthly sponsor or become a business or nonprofit supporter as well. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Uh, Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry. Thanks also to psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. If you live in Iowa, wherever you live in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-paid basis. Contact DavidDrakeFamilyPsychiatry.com. All right, so a Mark Klipsham is joining me, folks, and uh, you know Mark is a business owner, and he's a owner of a business that uh, that also um, uh, you know helps promote this program, and we really appreciate. Mark also has his own program on KHOI, a music-oriented program which is inter- entertaining, intriguing, uh, and uh, and avant-garde. Can I say that, Mark? I think that's accurate. It's, it's- partly there for entertainment it's also there to introduce people to things they probably haven't heard before yeah that's fair enough i, I think i've i think i've only recognized a couple tunes i've listened to on your program <laughs> I, I that's kind of kind of the idea there's so much out there and i wish more of it was played on the on the air you know you got your uh, la programmer you know i got their little table of what's hot and you know, just <laughs> yeah it's it's not geared for individuals it's individual it's geared for a mass market, yeah. which is not what KHOI is. Right. It's also not what the Fallon Forum is about. And uh, so I want to talk about healthcare today, or as um, some of us have come to call the healthcare system in the U.S., sick care system. And, um, you know, there's a strong connection between our healthcare system and our agricultural system. And uh, you brought that point home to me very. Uh, very powerfully recently by sending me a photograph of fruity pebbles, uh, which I have to admit I've never, I never tasted, and I will also be honest with you, I will never ever taste it. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I'm sure you've got tons of the stuff at home, Mark. It's in my bunker, Ed. It's, it's in, in your a, bunker. It's a thousand years. It's, it's it's the perfect food for the for the post-apocalyptic world. I think. Right, because this has got it's got a shelf life that'll last forever, right? Yes, and, yeah. and the dye protects me from radiation too. It's amazing. <laughs> it's, it's a perfect product, pretty much. Okay, well, I mean, and, of course, and of course, it's a waste product, like so many other things that are a product of our quote-unquote food system. What used to be uh, floor sweepings and and dog food is now our premium well, stuff. Wait, so how is how how is fruity pebbles um, a byproduct, a waste product? Uh, corn syrup, and uh, don't kill anybody over this. My daughter said that. She said, that's a byproduct of another process. I, I don't even know what it is. I didn't dive into it, but I don't think they make corn syrup for the specific purpose of making corn syrup. That's worth looking uh, into. But the, one thing's for sure, the stuff is pretty hideous. There's absolutely no way any any anyone who studies nutrition or diet recommends high fructose corn syrup as something you should be consuming in any quantity at all. It, it's It's... It's air. It's in fact not only it's negative. It kind of sucks health out of you. It takes the place of good things like fruits and vegetables. You know, fruits have sugars. Diabetics 
are even supposed to cut back on fruit because it has sugar in it. It's like, what do you think this stuff is? This is like, like crack or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and my, my, the whole subject of healthcare versus sick care, sum it all up. And what happened? What, what happened? Like when, when the settlers came here, there was people living off the land and eating, you know, wild nuts and berries and roots and animals and that kind of thing. And, then we improved it a lot. Uh, we changed it, I would say. Yeah, initially, initially with the introduction of smallpox. Well, <laughs> it got rid of a lot of the competition, didn't it? That was horrible. Um, uh, here, have some blankets. Uh, but even the settlers, and, and, you know, I'm a vegan. Okay. I don't hold that against you. I, I, not even that so much as, so... If I was an indigenous person or a settler, I could see that. You know, it's like you need the calories. You need the, the sort of the thunk in your stomach. I'm going to go out and work hard. Goodness knows when my next meal is going to come. Although the indigenous people actually had it pretty good. Uh, they used fish to fertilize their corn. means it wasn't really hard to get fish, right? Um, and then... For, the, for a long time, we had a very diverse agriculture here in Iowa. I think we're the sixth largest grape producer. Yeah, apples. You know, yeah, there, there, there Oats. was uh, yeah. you know, multiple kinds of grain, and uh, heaven forbid soybeans might have actually been eaten by people as opposed to fed to pigs. <laughs> you know? So, yeah, by the way, soybeans are good, but they don't grow them for people. They grow them for animals. So, bo- bo- so bottom line is we've developed a subsidy system that basically subsidizes the wrong things. And, uh, I mean, you could argue that some corn production makes sense, but if it's fi- primarily focused on, on livestock, on ethanol, and on high fructose corn syrup, maybe that's not the best investment of our of our, of our subsidy dollar, but um, it has a direct impact on our, quote, healthcare system by, by basically, you know, creating food products that aren't very good for you. I mean, we, 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 have, not, uh, we have not wrangled the uh, demon of obesity in this country. It continues to get worse. Wrangled, yeah, I was going to say, we're, we're feeding it. We're feeding it <laughs> corn syrup. Well. What, what, so, so the whole subsidy thing, it started to, there's a, a analogy of if you're growing vines, you know, and you don't want them to go to a certain place. So you kind of bend them and you push them over this way and you, you get them to go the direction they want. So they're not going in your tomatoes or going up the vines they're going up the trellises, right? That's going to be yeah. the, that's going to be a conversation in our fourth segment today. Way to go. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, sort of. <laughs> so, so that, that's what the subsidies do. They corrupted, well, yeah, I, I would say redirected would be a nice way to do it. I would say corrupted. What if the same system were to come into an Amish community? We're going to subsidize the production of, you know, corn and beans for export. You know, like, well, <laughs> this is what we eat, though. <laughs> we weed the diversity and all that stuff. It's like, well, yeah, there's a lot of money to be made here. We have an international market now, and this is really what we need to do to, to make our economy grow and be a powerhouse in the you know world global economy and all this, and the Amish are going like, we're in fact the Bible pretty much warns about globalization and worldliness very much, and frankly, it seems for a very very good reason. Or, well, you know, I'm, I'm I'm not sure the, I'm not sure if the Bible uh, warns about globalization. I'd love to love to find that passage, but the um, they, but it's they pretty... talk about worldliness and that. Oh, okay, is all right, sure. That's for globalization. Uh, maybe, 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 but it's also pretty clear that you know the um, the whole uh, the, the whole emphasis on an export economy negates the value of a local economy. And I mean, and look, we're doing we're doing it with oil right now. The oil that's being pumped out of the Permian Basin in Texas or out of the Bakken region in North Dakota. Uh, it's hard to know how much. They won't tell you how much, but I'm betting that most of that is going for export. They're going to get the highest dollar for it. Mm-hmm. And right now, there's a lot of money to be made selling it overseas. Hogs. How, what percentage of our hogs in Iowa are going overseas, especially to China? What percentage well, of our and, wind? And who, own, who owns the production facilities and the hogs anymore? Well, China owns Smithland. Smithfield, you rather. Go, you kind of go, what, once again, what happened? Back to the whole health care thing. Yes, I, yeah, we, we, we digress. Vegan, 
I make, uh, well, no, it, it is all tied together. It is absolutely tied together, and I really dislike it when people try to pull it apart. You're like, no, no, every little bump bumps something else, and this does this, and this does this, and so our ag subsidies end up with a very animal product-heavy economy, sure, a little bit. Once again, I'm, I'm going to give you that. But I listen to the radio every now and again. I see the ads. It's sausage and eggs for breakfast with bacon. It's, you know, a burger for lunch. It's steak for dinner with fries. You know, it's, it's every single meal and not just what you need. It's three times what you need. Uh, it's all saturated fats. No, no mystery. Well, and I would I, say I, that 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 I mean, I, I that that sounds like too much meat to me as well. But, but also, you know, it's what you have. It's how much of it do you eat, and and what do you eat with it? And you know, and, and again, I think I think a bigger enemy than than meat would be processed foods. Uh, the stuff made with so much sugar, salt, and fat that there's nothing good about it. <laughs> there's nothing well, good about and, it. And certain kinds of I was looking. Right. I was looking for a good cracker, a good whole wheat cracker, and I found these ones in the hippie grocery store. I'm not going to mention. And I went, oh, good. So I was whole wheat. And then I read the ingredients. The second ingredient was palm oil, palm kernel oil, and the third one was sugar. And I went, these are not crackers. These are cookies. They're calling them crackers. They are cookies. The, the part I get into the cycling part about this is is the expectation of the typical consumer is I'm going to get a meal. I'm going to go to a uh, presser time. I'm going to stop at a fast food place. It's going to cost six bucks. I'm going to eat this meal in five minutes. It's going to put a brick in my stomach of the good life. You know, I, I feel full and all this kind of stuff. Me, the vegan has my cabbage, edamame, pepper, carrot salad. It takes 20 minutes to eat a lot of fiber, not that many calories. You know what? I feel really good. I might put some fakey chicken strips in it or something like that for a little bit of funk, but I, <laughs> okay. I, but it, it takes it takes time to eat good food, and the whole world is pecking at you to do this. Yeah. And then you get into the healthcare part, which ironically takes more time. People complain about how sure. much how expensive our healthcare system is, but the very economy that bemoans paying for the health care is the one inputting to the health care crisis. And they're there for cheap, fast project, profits. So, of course, they don't want to support and pay for the health care that the sure. crisis they cause. Well, yeah, That's I mean, I mean uh, health care, I mean, a sick person is a good thing for the, the, the economy. The, the GDP likes all that, that, that cost. Yep. yep. Yeah, if, if, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and and you don't want to cure it. Oh, this is a, this is a, this is mind blowing one, Ed. How do you cure a healthcare crisis? This this is freaky stuff. I know it's way out there, but if you eat fruits and vegetables and drink a lot of water and low limit your amount of fats and use whole grains and exercise, and this is weird stuff. I know it's totally out there, but you'll be healthy. <laughs> it's crazy stuff. Yeah, but. That doesn't make anybody any money. I mean, yeah. As much as they complain about how much it costs, it's a gold mine. Well, and would you would you would you agree too that part of the problem is advertising? If you because it, it, it's so profitable, I've said that a lot. The more something is marketed and advertised, the more profitable it is. And you so look he, at what's in the paper: it's pizza, it's cheese, it's meat, it's it's not kale, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> why, why does why does it, why does alcohol have to come with a, a warning on the label? Uh, Cigarettes, um, also a warning, and, and, and you're not able to advertise cigarettes. Uh, marijuana, of course, really bad stuff. Uh, still I- illegal in a lot of places. But why, why, why are Fruity Pebbles um, uh, considered a food product <laughs> when they're oh, oh, just no, as no, bad look, for you, arguably? I, I, look, look, look at this one. Look up the carcinogenic uh, labeling for processed meats. It is a Class A carcinogen. Bacon, sausage. Uh, but now, now let me ask you: that. Does it depend how it's raised? Does, I mean, the, the 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 products that were looked at in that survey were those confinement operations, uh, corn-fed cattle, or were they were they the animals that were raised more sustainably? Sustainably. Well, I think when you get into the processed meat part, for example, bacon would be smoked. They're invariably going to have. Uh, 
fair amount of uh, uh, stabilizers, preservatives. I mean, that's that's well, where they, they don't they don't need with. they don't need to, and they shouldn't, in my opinion. We're talking about the ninety five percent here. All I, right. I, it, I, it might be entirely possible. I don't know, but. So how how do we how do we, how do we move beyond? I always like to try to. I mean, this is a tough one, but how do you how do you move beyond a, a sick care system to a healthcare system? Mark Clipsham's uh, three or four or five step plan to get that accomplished. Stop subsidies for agriculture. We're done. Okay, for for any kind of agriculture or specifically the wrong kind. Uh, uh, okay, well, they don't subsidize small organic farms, right? So no, <laughs> no. <laughs> they, they seem to be able to survive on their own. This is crazy talk. Whereas the factory farms are financially insolvent. If right. you pulled, oh, yeah, but you talk about a gallon of gas going up a dollar and a half and people scream bloody murder. What if your hamburger is now eight dollars a pound oh my goodness how will we survive well funny i've been a vegan for six or seven years i still have a few extra pounds i'm really healthy i don't see the issue at all okay so i'm not subsidized and i have virtually no need for health care so that's that's the key is to address the agricultural subsidies but then i mean i would also say that we've got we've got to change our entire health care system it should not be insurance based it should not be employer based uh, employment based uh, and it should focus on as, as much as much as possible to encouraging, uh, you know, you know, through incentives of one type or another to encouraging healthy living. Uh, I mean, some of that was done with Obamacare, um, you know. Well, kind of. It's, it's kind of like a wink and a nudge. Um, once again, good health is not a rocket science. The whole world is conspiring, conspiring against you. You know, I want to. A double cheeseburger, uh, order fries, and give me a large drink, you know, and that's seven bucks. Well, that seven bucks has been subsidized. Oh, yeah. By, by me, by the way. Extensively which, subsidized, yeah. So. Yeah. All I, right. So, well, if you put the real cost on there, first off, I think that would do a whole lot, just like yeah. cigarettes. There are still people that smoke at seven bucks a pack. Yeah. But incredible finance. Oh, well, the, one last thing. Yeah. Centralization. So now all this export stuff, we're watching this happen in Ukraine and Russia. That you know, some despot dictator with an ego decides to get on a trip, and the whole world is affected by it. Well, now we're supplying grain to wherever, where, pork, all this kind of stuff. They talked about a rail strike, which is a labor thing. Well, what happens when you have climatic disasters yeah. or terrorism takes out bridges or oh, whatever? Yeah. You have the rivers dry up or a pandemic. Now, yeah, half the world starves because of our our mm. economic incentives driven by yeah. subsidy. Well, Mark, that was a great segue because my next segment is discussing the rail strike or the rail there, there the rail strike that was averted thanks to intervention by the federal government. Um, uh, thanks to. <laughs> yeah. No, no. We needed that wake-up call. It's right. institutionalizing the dysfunction. That's all it's doing. We have no resilience. Yeah. One little thing goes wrong, everything goes wrong. That's the dangers of centralization, globalization, and all that kind of stuff. Mark, and it also spreads disease, too. Hey, whatever. Mark, uh, thank you uh, so much for joining us, Mark. Sure. Hey, folks, I've been talking with Mark Klipsham. This is Ed Fallon. we got to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to be discussing the, uh, the rail strike that was averted, uh, which has not made a lot of people involved with the uh, with who, who work in with uh, work with the rail industry very happy. We'll be back in a minute to talk about that on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online, and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. 
Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Western Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Remember, you can support this alternative to these shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor or a business or nonprofit sponsor. Uh, check out the Fallon Forum website for details. Uh, thanks to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. All right, so the New York Times um, has this to say about the uh, rail dispute. Uh, Congress and President Biden imposed a labor agreement between major railroad companies and their workers, averting the possibility of a strike that would have disrupted the economy in the middle of the holiday shopping season. The agreement gives rail workers a pay raise and other benefits, but not paid medical leave. That's from the New York Times, the mouthpiece of the status quo. I spoke today with Ross Gruders. He's a, a Pleasant Hill City Council member also works in the rail industry, has for a long time. He's a union member and also co-chair of Railroad Workers United. I'd hoped he might join us today, but his schedule is pretty intense and it did not allow for that to happen. We did have a chance to visit on the phone, however. And um, yeah, so we know where the mainstream media stands. They love the status quo. They love it, love it, love it. And they don't see anything wrong with the fact that unlike most unions, rail workers and also, for that matter, workers in the airline industry, they fall under this, this unique uh, management system called the Railway, Railway Labor Act, passed back in the 1920s. And according to um, Mr. Gruders, um, that act was in place, it was put in place largely to prevent workers from striking, uh, very effective. And under that agreement, um, you know, well, the agreement was based on the argument that rail and air travel and other transportation industries are so, quote, essential that they can't be disrupted by something as silly as workers demanding better pay or more affordable health care or adequate sick leave, that sort of thing. It's tough enough to be a worker in this country, um, not represented by a union. It's maybe a little less tough to be represented by a union because you've got at least a fighting chance. But I think in terms of being a union member, uh, Maybe maybe the toughest spot to be is is a real worker, you know. And I asked I asked Ross about the um, mainstream media point too. You know, they they this whole thing is kind of hinged on. Well, there's, there's been several arguments. One was, oh no, it's Christmas time. Everybody's shopping. This will disrupt the economy terribly. Um, we'll lose what a couple billion dollars a day if we let this strike go ahead. I asked Ross about that, and he said that was a complete red herring. You know, we are already. Uh, you know, we're already seeing these supply chain chain impacts um, because of the way that railways are being managed. Um, and I would say, my words here, mismanaged. Um, you know, really the question is, and, you know, and Ross asked this too, is why are railways not public, publicly owned? I mean, highways are. I mean, if you, if you, if you decided to let the trucking industry own the highways, what would that look like? I don't even want to know. <laughs> so, but, you know, we see the problems with the uh, big railroad companies owning the railways. Um, they get to control so much. I mean, if, if anybody here is, anybody listening has traveled Amtrak, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, I, I've traveled Amtrak quite a bit. I've never, ever been on time. My train has never left on time once. It's never arrived on time once. And I don't blame Amtrak. I blame the fact that you've got these big corporations owning the tracks that can always bump Amtrak off in order to accommodate whatever shipment they want to get somewhere at a certain time. You know, that could be better managed. If there was an equity between other public needs like passenger rail and freight, tra freight travel, but that's kind of a digression from the main point here. Um, you know, again, the, the, the mainstream media likes to describe this agreement that Biden signed as good for the workers. Uh, that was the, the raise they got. But um, it's fairly complex. And I, I won't 
burden you with all the complexities, but Ross pointed out that, you know, going forward, it's very likely that these raises will basically keep workers' workers' income flat when it comes to factoring in inflation. Or it's even possible that you might see workers' purchasing power even decline over the next couple of years. I don't know where this goes next because, again, they're going to have to renegotiate, you know, again in two years because this is the third year of a contract negotiation that wasn't going anywhere and the workers are getting ready to strike. Um, you know, Ross believes that this contract is largely everything the railroad wanted to accomplish. And uh, a big part of that is a, an ongoing reduction in the workforce. And again, that's good for them. They make a lot more money when they have less workers to pay. But it also creates this huge staffing problem. And this is why workers have to work ridiculous hours while they don't get uh, sick days, while they don't get holidays off. Um, Ross told me about a worker down in southeast Iowa, a guy who... Um, wasn't allowed to take off for a simple doctor visit. It's very likely that visit would have uh, caught the guy's heart condition. It didn't, and the guy did. The guy died. Uh, you know, I, I don't imagine that's the only example like that. So, you know, politically, now, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I don't want to minimize the uh, the reality of that this has been a very difficult, you know situation for the rail workers. That's the bottom line here. But I want to look at the politics of this for a minute. This has got to be a huge hit to President Biden. Biden has fashioned himself as the friendliest president ever to labor. And yet he just negotiated a deal which no one in the industry thinks was a good idea. Or at least very, very few in the industry think it was a good idea. Uh, Hugh Sawyer, he's the uh, treasurer of the Railroad, Railroad Workers Union. His quote is this. He says, quote, Joe Biden blew it. He had the opportunity to prove his labor-friendly pedigree to millions of workers by simply asking Congress for legislation to end the threat of a national strike on terms more favorable to workers. Sadly, he could not bring himself to advocate for a lousy handful of sick days. The Democrats and Republicans are both pawns of big business and the corporations. That's from a key leader in the Railroad, Railroad Workers Union. And, um, you know, so what does this do to Biden? Well, of course, you know, somebody who voted for Biden because they couldn't stand Trump is probably still going to vote for Biden. And again, I, I, I'm not sure Trump's going to be the nominee. There's a really good chance that he will be, even though the Republican Party is soured on him, the base much of the base still likes the nut. Um, and, I, and I'm sorry, I, I, I don't normally name call, but Trump is so off the rails that maybe that's not, not a bad description. But Joe Biden, you know, what's going to happen with his labor base is they're, they're not going to say, well, I'm just going to go vote for Biden because uh, we just can't stand Trump. Some of them are probably going to go vote for Trump because you know what a bunch of them already did. I mean, the working communities, the, the, the labor union strong communities in Iowa, a lot of them are now voting Republican. I talk about Burlington, Keokuk, uh, Dubuque. Um, Dubuque, still marginally Democrat, but it's close. Or the northeast side of Des Moines. I mean, Des Moines has been a solid Democratic community forever, uh, more so recently even. Um, but the northeast side, that's where I used to represent. I used to represent a big chunk of the northeast side of Des Moines. It was the highest percentage of uh, labor union households in the state and one of the best in terms of Democratic percentage of vote. The incumbent Democrat in that district won in a fairly close race. So again, workers are feeling abandoned by the Democratic Party, and this is just going to hurt even more. Uh, they're not going to forget in two years. Yeah, you know... There's probably a reason why Joe Biden waited till after the um, after the midterm election to to uh, to negotiate this quote deal. He probably should have waited till after the uh, the uh, December sixth special election for the U.S. Senate in Georgia. But this is not going to help. Uh, this is going to come back to hurt Biden, to hurt Democrats, and again, not just because of everything I told you, but look at the vote uh, last Thursday in the Senate. Uh, the Senate voted. 52 to 43 in favor of a measure that would have ensured rail workers were granted seven days of sick leave. That measure needed 60 votes to overcome a filibuster. 
Uh, Joe Manchin voted no on the six days. But get this, a handful of Republicans. I mean, Democrat Joe Manchin voted against allowing a handful of sick days for these railroad workers. I guess that's no surprise. Maybe this would be a surprise. A handful of Republicans voted to allow sick days. And again, Bernie Sanders was big behind that. He was, he was very vocal about it. And voting with Sanders were Senator Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, Marco Rubio, Mike Brown, John Kennedy, and Lindsey Graham. Now, I'm under no, these aren't labor-friendly U.S. senators on the Republican side, no. But they're politically astute, and they see what's happening. They see that this is going to really, really hurt Biden, hurt the Democrats. So now they can say, well, look, we voted to give them sick days. Yeah. Anyway, Biden blew it. (laughs) I hate to say that, but uh, it's true, and it's really sad um, because uh, the folks who are running our Running our rail yards, our trains, um, they work really hard um, and they don't have the same kind of voice when it comes to negotiations as a lot of union members do. And that's wrong. That's your change. And, um, you know, I'm I guess I'll say one thing on the state level. I'm reminded uh, of Chuck Culver. When I ran for governor, I ran against Chuck Culver. Mike Bluen. Culver won the primary. And uh, he was not happy with labor because most of labor I had, I had a lot of rank-and-file labor, labor members uh, supporting me, but some of the bigger unions went with what National wanted, and they went with a guy named Mike Bluen. Culver wasn't happy about that. Uh, and between Culver being unhappy with labor and there being six Democrats who voted against everything that labor wanted, except for one bill, one bill passed, a bill regarding collective bargaining. And what does Culver do? He vetoes it. So, you know, to me, it's no surprise the Democrats have kind of lost favor with, uh, with uh, working, vote, working voters. <laughs> anyway, we'll see where this goes. But I'll tell you what, we're going to change the t- subject when we come back. Kathy Burns and I are going to be discussing tomatoes. Not a political thing at all, but a very important conversation. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Lipsham is committed to the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Mark says no matter how you plan or renovate your project, use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. A beautiful project will be revered, maintained, and valued, and is the best investment you can make for a future we all share. Learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. You like potatoes, and I like potatoes. You like tomatoes, and I like tomato. Potato, potato, tomato, tomato. Oh, let's call the whole thing off. Back at you, folks. Ed Fallon here with the Fallon Forum. Remember, you can support this alternative to the shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor. Or if you own a small business or run a nonprofit, you can become a sponsor of this program as well. And speaking of sponsors, uh, thanks to uh, Gateway Marketing Cafe, uh, that's Des Moines' locally owned and specialty grocery food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. And here's a great holiday idea, Gateway gift cards. Gateway gift cards can be used not only at Gateway Market, but also at several great Central Iowa establishments as well, including Centro, Django, Malo, Zombie Burger, and more. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. All right, Kathy is with me, Kathy Burns, and we, um, I believe you have tomatoes on your mind for some reason. For some reason. Well, you know, here at Birds and Bees Urban Farm, we keep close tabs on the social media forums that have to do with gardening, growing vegetables, uh, bees, chickens. Nobody in the north, at least, is growing tomatoes now. Maybe down south, but not here. Right, right. 
But uh, I saw a question about a woman here in the Midwest, and she was wintering over some tomatoes, having cut stems, and, and she was just going to root them in some water. She was surprised when one of the tomatoes... Uh, tomato plants put on a little baby tomato and wow. and of course that's because tomatoes are self-pollinating but when I was looking at more information on that ooh, it opened up a can of worms for me okay and inside that can of worms is <laughs> well in one of our uh, earlier segments on the Fallon form we talked about the difficulty of a lot of plants to set uh, on yeah. fruit that worm in what what right. you like to call the new climate era and we had noted that when temperatures are um, above 85 or 90 degrees and some of the sites I, I looked at even say 80 degrees consistently uh, they have trouble with pollination, and yeah. I didn't really know why. But I also learned that the problem isn't just the high temperature, but if the low temperature doesn't get below 70, uh, they can really run into problems. And this is because the tomatoes yeah, are self-pollinating. Okay, why, why would that matter? Well, the, um, the male and female parts of the plant are very close together. And, and they're, they're cuddling. In the, in the flower, yeah. um, not all flowers and plants are self-pollinating, right, but right. a tomato is. So um, the uh, male stamen and the female pistil are right there, and uh, that means when when the wind catches some of the uh, pollen from the stamen, it can drift it over onto the top of the pistil and pollinate the plant, or bee could do that too. Well, in excessive heat and prolonged heat, there uh, the 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 pollen actually is not viable. It's dead oh, it seed. Loses? It's, it loses its viability. Oh, the okay. pollen can get to where right. it needs to go. Well, and that may be our problem. I mean, we had, a, we had a fairly lousy crop of tomatoes this year. Normally, we were probably canning, what, 20 quarts of tomato sauce mm -hmm. or marinara. This year, I think we did eight. Yeah, you know? we only have four left in yeah, the basement, I, I believe. And many. that was starting with some of last yeah. year's surplus. Um, so, so this this is part of the problem. But we want to think about planning ahead now for better success with tomatoes next year, and uh, that would include thinking of ways to alleviate the heat that your tomatoes are exposed to, possibly shedding, setting up a shade structure for them in some way, or planting where they might get a little afternoon shade. Which is a weird idea. Most yeah. people think of full sun all day. Yeah, but no, that's a good idea. I, I, I don't, I don't know. How would you set up a shade structure? Uh, well, I guess it depends on where you, what, what your, what your setup is like. But uh, I think the best thing we could do maybe is take some very light row cover and just gently drape it over the tomato and just, just keep some of that direct sun off. Another way to ensure better pollination is to include a lot of airflow. Yeah. So you want to, we always prune our plants up from the bottom so that we don't get the, uh, the blight. Right. Um, but making sure you cut the suckers off the plants, and we did another show on some of some that. Some more airflow gets in? Well, yeah, so they don't grow and develop a, a, a part of the plant that will have a lot of foliage and not produce the fruit for you. It'll just crowd out mm. the space for the pollination to happen on the other stems. Even some further pruning of the plant yeah. would be a good idea. What, what I'm wondering about is if, if, you, if you put a row cover over the tomato and with the idea of reducing the, the impact of the sun, that doesn't that doesn't you know reduce the impact of the heat though the the, te the air temperature is still going to be the same it it may just take the edge off enough hmm. but that was okay. a recommendation that i saw just okay. try to give it a little shade in the afternoon make sure it gets that good full morning sun and through the through the middle part of the day but that afternoon sun is is pretty brutal um, other things you can do to plan now for really better fruiting overall uh, next year is uh, check your nitrogen content. We have very nitrogen-rich soil because of all the compost mm. and the manure uh, and all of that. But as soon as your your uh, plant gives you your first blossoms, you want to think about adding potassium and phosphorus and find some you know natural resources yeah. for that. Well, yeah, that's that's and that we've seen that problem with our potatoes as well. Yes. Uh, yeah, and with pepper plants. I mean, we mm -hmm. have pepper plants that can be six feet tall, uh, and yet they aren't producing anywhere 
near as much as some smaller plants mm-hmm. that have, I think, a higher level of potassium and, and, uh, right. and phosphorus in the soil. So we're just going to be a little more on the ball about that next yeah. year. And as soon as that first set of blossoms come out is the so, time to do that. So what are, what are some sources of potassium and phosphorus that people might start thinking of applying once you once you once your flowers start appealing, that's appearing. that's good to know because you can start saving this stuff now. Well, bone meal, you're probably not going to save your own bone meal, but well, I've depend, heard of people depend, doing it. It depends. This is you know, for phosphorus. I mean, if you, if you grind your bone, your, the enemies of your the bones of your enemies, you to know, make you can my always bread, yeah. Like the, the green instead giant. of making your bread, you can make your your potassium phosphorus uh, fertilizer. Well, mix. bone meal. If you see it on sale, <laughs> you can pick it up, or you can make your own crushed eggshell. Save all your eggshells. Let sure. them get thoroughly dry and crush them. Don't burn them in a stove like I did today accidentally. <laughs> Banana peel, you can, I don't know if you've got space in your freezer, you could save some banana peels or just wait till spring and start saving some banana peels or throw them in there. And I even heard human hair is good for phosphorus. I I have nothing to offer there. (laughs) I've been saving quite a bit of mine. I just cut about five inches off my hair. Well, well, if we have to make you bald in the spring in order to get the... uh, Get the plants going, we'll do that, I guess. Potassium, also banana peel, wood ash, just go light on the wood ash because um, it can burn the plant if you use too much. Okay, you know that's that's really good good information. I mean, you don't you don't think about tomatoes in December, but if the problem is fruiting, then yeah, you want to start yep. thinking about those things now. Saving your banana peels, your eggshells, your hair, your hair, your hair, and your um your uh, your bones, eggs, your bones, I guess, <laughs> right? Hey, Kathy, thanks for joining us, you're uh, folks. Uh, you can learn more about Birds and Bees Urban Farm at the birdsbeesurbanfarm.org website. Uh, thanks to our guest today, Mark Clipsham, and although he, he was not on the show, Ross Gruders for taking the time to talk with me about the uh, rail worker situation. Thanks to our production team of Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, Kathy Burns, and myself, Ed Fallon. Thanks to our local business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Western Optometry, and Dr. David Drake Family Psychiatry. Thanks to our nonprofit partners, Bold Iowa and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Thanks again for listening, folks. We'll be back next week with another hour of cutting-edge talk radio.